you're wondering what all the uh, conversation is up here, uh, <clears throat> I had a great opportunity to uh, go and help some friends that have just moved back into the, uh, into the area. They've been gone for some time, but uh, <clears throat> in the process of helping them move uh, and unload, I tweaked my back, and so Bill graciously was wondering if it would be better if I had a chair, a stool, or the couch from the foyer because he loves me so much. He's looking out for my best interest. How's everybody doing? Everybody doing good? Awesome. Well, uh, definitely, uh, <clears throat> definitely want to uh, encourage everybody to have a great Memorial Day weekend. Dennis, thank you for praying earlier, and Dave, for your comments uh, during the announcement time. And, you know, and for sure, uh, it's a day to, to go and to uh, memorialize those that have sacrificed everything uh, so that we could live in a society, you know, that is free of, now this doesn't sound like the last year and a half, I know that, but a society that's free of checkpoints, <laughs> you know, a society where, uh, where, where you don't have to uh, uh, be afraid every single night, wondering what's going to happen, whether the government's going to show up and, you know, bust through your door. We can live in a free and an open society uh, where, as the founders intended, we would be governed more by God than by the government. That was the intention, if you want to kind of summarize it, that we would, we would understand as a people and as a nation that God is sovereign over us and that uh, as we follow Him, there's really not a lot of need then uh, for uh, a, a bunch of heavy-handedness. That's why the majority of our founding documents are more about what the government can't do uh, than what it can do. And let's not forget that. But definitely, as we remember today, um, or this weekend, uh, let's, uh, let's take part in, in honoring those that sacrifice so we can continue in that, in that way. Uh, the idea for the, um, to encourage us even, uh, like David did during the announcements, to go... Um, and to embrace that little thing in your bulletin. Everybody got one of those little things? They start right here on Zimmer Road, uh, just across the river and across the field right over here. Zimmer Road, there's a little tiny cemetery. Um, uh, there's no vacancy in, anymore in the Addy Cemetery. But that's where they start, and they go from there, and then they go up to Summit Valley, and then they go down south. They hit the cemeteries in the Chewila area, and then start going further south. And I would really encourage all of us to, uh, to embrace um, and get up in the morning and take that in. It's a, it's, a neat cemetery, uh, it's a neat opportunity, a neat ceremony, and it's really a neat opportunity um, to get to know people in your community. If you don't know, if you've just moved into a community, uh, or if you don't know a lot of people, a lot of your neighbors or people around your area, whether it's the Addy area, Summit Valley, uh, Chuila, or further south, I would really encourage all of us. It's a great opportunity to get to know the people that are right around us. And uh, so, anyway, um, we've been we've been studying uh, in the book of Psalms. I've been reading actually a lot this last week, um, looking at uh, some passages in the New Testament, specifically First and Second Corinthians, and then the pastoral epistles of. First and Second Timothy and Titus, but uh, <clears throat> I want to uh, dive into a particular psalm here to close out the month of May. And in a lot of Christian circles, a lot of these types of holidays, whether it's 
Memorial Day, Veterans Day, whether it's the 4th of July, you will often hear this verse quoted, and, and uh, it's a powerful verse. It's a verse that says a lot. It's a verse that uh, uh, is very specific to the nation of Israel, but I think that there's some you know, extending principles that are in here for everybody. Um, you hear this a lot at prayer marches, uh, gatherings at the Capitol. You hear this a fair amount of time on the Internet or, or on the televangelist that's trying to make a point. But the verse is Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Uh, it's really it's a great verse. It's an awesome verse out of Second Chronicles chapter 7, uh, where God really promises a couple of things. Uh, he promises to hear, He promises to forgive, and He promises to heal. In other words, we could say it this way, um, God is bringing restoration. God's in the restoration business. All those three words all speak of God's restorative work. The fact that He's going to hear, He's going to have relationship, He's going to forgive them, He's going to heal their land. We'll get to that in a second. You might say it's linked this way. The, uh, the humble them, there's the, the other components to it, though, is the humble themselves, the pray, the seek, and the turn. That's our part. That was Israel's part in the matter. God said he would do his part, but he wanted to know if Israel was going to do their part. I think he wants to know if we'll do our part as well. The heal, forgive, and hear is linked to the humble, being humble, praying, seeking, and turning. Or we could use this word, which really kind of summarizes the attitude of those words. That's the word repentance. When we talk about repentance... We think about repentance. Let's make sure that our minds are focused not just on a one-time event that happened, you know, when you were 10 and you were at summer camp, you were at a Bible camp and you threw a stick in the fire and you repented of your sins, which that is repentance. It is. I'm not going to say it's not. But when we think of repentance, I want to insert this idea in our minds, and I talk about it often this way, is that we should live a repentant lifestyle. We should live repentance on a daily basis. Our lives should reflect God's goodness and His graciousness in our lives that we live a repentant type of lifestyle. The idea that God desires to show mercy to His people, both for Israel and for us, and that He delights when His people are looking for mercy. He delights when His people are looking for His mercy. Now back to that last phrase, heal their land. It's an interesting concept, it's an interesting phrase that is inserted in there. Because land is important to God. Land is important to God. Just like our land, just like the, 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 you know, the land that, that our uh, soldiers bled and died for, those of you that have served in the military, you've stood your post, those that are currently in the military, standing their post on behalf of you and me, but on behalf of our land. This is our country. And I'm going to get to that at the very end of the sermon. I'll extend it a little bit more, but I do want to make this point. The land and the people are linked together because of what God has said. The land and the people are linked together based upon what is God has said. Uh, and coupled with that, though, are the words of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman 
and I'll give you my quick synopsis of that conversation. It's not the where, it's the who. So the land is important to God, but it's not the where. That's kind of what Jesus' words for her was. It doesn't, you know, it's not where we worship, it's who we worship. But that doesn't negate the fact that, that the land, the land for Israel, our land, other country, other people's lands, it's important. It's an important concept and it's important to understand. We're going to get to that at the very, very end. We see the same concept play out actually in some of these same phrases play out in Psalm 85. If you would turn there, we'll fire off and get cooking and uh, take a look at Psalm 85 here. Now, like several Psalms, including Psalm 85, it kind of fits the period of Israel's return from exile in Babylon. If you remember your biblical history, uh, and I'll dive into this a little bit at the end too, but, but <clears throat> Israel had some major issues. God says, hey, you need to address these issues. You're getting my summary. Quick synopsis of a lot of pages of the Bible. But you got issues. You're not dealing with your issues. I've warned you. I've warned you. I've warned you again. Because you failed to deal with your issues, I'm going to discipline you as a nation, and you're going to go to Babylon you're going to be divided up. You're going to be shuffled all over the known world. Psalm 85 is kind of on the back side of that, where to look from the perspective of the return, I suppose you would say. The superscription at the top says, A prayer that God will restore favor to the land, to the chief musician. A psalm of the sons of Korah. We talked about the sons of Korah last week. They were... A, Worship leaders in Israel, uh, prolific uh, authors and, and uh, writers of the Psalms, the sons of Korah were. We don't know really any much more than that, uh, other than they were of the tribe of Levi. But let's dive in and hear what they have to say. Verse 1 says, Lord, you have been favorable to your land. Circle that in your Bible or in your notes. You've been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You've forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sins, Selah, which as I've mentioned before is a little phrase that essentially means think about it, meditate on that idea. You've taken away all of your wrath, verse 3 says. You've turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. There's quite a declaration there. Let's look at a few things. Notice that the, the first seven verses there that we just read. Notice the the mention of the word you have six times. You have, you have, you have. The declaration of what God has done for this people. The declaration that, that, that He is in charge of their destiny. He is in charge of their future. He's in charge of what their past. Mention six times this phrase, you have. Notice also in those same seven verses, your, the word your, mentioned eight times actually. Show us your mercy, Lord. Show us your mercy. Notice also the early and often focus, right in the first line there, 
of your land. It's actually mentioned three times in this psalm. This is just the first one. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. Where 2 Chronicles 7.14 ends with the promise of healing the land, Psalms 85 starts off with a declaration of what God has been doing with his land. And we looked at a few of these ideas, I suppose, that could overlay a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 24, where the reality is, is that all of the earth is God's. That's what Psalm 24 says. All of the earth is God's. But here specifically, specifically, he's talking about the land in the Middle East, the nation of Israel. It's undeniable in a way that Israel is his special possession. And with God having a special regard for his land and the link between the land and the people. Notice also in Psalm 85 all the references to God's restorative work that the psalmist is calling for or is mentioned. Look at the things, and I have them in kind of a bullet point, <clears throat> bullet form on my notes, but the sons of Korah are calling on God to return the captives to their homes, to forgive the wrong. They're talking about what God has restored, covered the sin, he removed wrath, he withdrew anger. These are all things that they're trying to, that they're <clears throat> expressing to God in song and appreciating his work therein. Restored his people. Withdraw generational punishment. Revive his people. The idea to revive there is to revive to worship and to reveal his mercy and to give them salvation. Doesn't that sound a lot like it's coming from a repentant heart? Doesn't the flavor and the tone and the tenor of, these, of this psalm, of these first seven verses, these are coming from, from musicians and authors and writers that are coming from a, a place of being broken and repentant. They're thinking back, this is what God has done. Won't you continue to do this? Won't you continue to, to provide for us in this way? You brought back the captivity of Jacob. Uh, when a nation was taken captive, essentially it meant that they lost not only their land, but they lost their possession, they lost all of their animals, their herds, the animals that they worked their farms with, they lost their wealth, they were, they were displaced, uh, <clears throat> they were displaced all over the place so that they couldn't recongregate and reform into a nation. So, so Nebuchadnezzar, he, he took and he spread them all over the known world, places here, places there, small pockets. The psalmist is proclaiming that God has restored everything that was lost in captivity. It's a good time to ask ourselves a couple of questions. One, uh, what have I lost as a result of sin's captivity in my life? What's, what's, what's missing? Is there something missing? Have I lost something? Am I still kind of just trying to figure that out and, and trying to grapple with that truth if it's, if it's a reality in your life? What have I lost as a result of sin's captivity in my life? Or, maybe you'll ask yourself this question, uh, what causes me to be grateful, kind of on the other side of the spectrum, what causes me to be grateful um, what, because of what's been restored in my life? Thinking back to your own testimony, thinking back to the, your own walk with the Lord, what are those things in your life, we call it a testimony, Right? Testimony of what God has done. What are those things 
And like the sons of Korah have mentioned quite a few of them. What are those things in your life? Write yourself a note, make a mental checklist, you know, type it in the notes on your iPhone, whatever you want to do. What are those things in your life, what are those things in my life as I think over where God has restored something that was lost? Where God has brought a full circle out of captivity back into the quote-unquote promised land and following Him and doing life with Him. What captive thing has been restored in my life? Like Second Chronicles 7, the people in the land, of course, are linked in that way. We look forward to the promised land, uh, the fulfillment of all of biblical prophecy, in that sense, a real place filled with real people. So we have repentance, we have restoration, and now insert in verse 6, revival, with the question, will you not revive us again? A simple and powerful wonderful question that's really penetrating when you as individuals, when me as an individual, or us as, you can, you can overlay this question over every aspect of your life. What do I mean by that? Maybe I need, I'll use myself, maybe I need a personal revival. So God, will you revive me again? Will you revive me in relationship with you again? Maybe it's in our marriage. Maybe there's a struggle with our marriage. God, will you revive our marriage again? Will you set our marriage on fire for you as a couple again? Will you restore what's lost in that sense? Maybe it's as a family. Some of the most heartbreaking times, I think, as parents that we've experienced is we've experienced division in the family. Maybe that's the area of revival that needs to be prayed for and sought for. Maybe it's bigger than that. Maybe it's in the church. Maybe it's in the community. Maybe it's for our state. Definitely for our nation. God, will you revive us again is the question that rings out from the psalmist here. A simple and wonderful prayer for revival. It recognizes that revival is not man-made Important theological point here. It recognizes in this psalm that revival is not man-made. You can't make revival happen. You can't, you can't drum it up in that way. We can't make it happen just, you know, banging on the instruments and, and, and the drums and playing the guitar louder. That's not revival. Revival is a work that God does in our hearts. Revival is a work that is given by God, and yet it also recognizes here in the psalm that it should be prayed for. And we should pray with a godly expectation when it comes to the things that need to be revived in our lives. A couple of quick points about this. Psalms 85 tells us when to pray for revival. It tells us who to pray for. So the when, we should be praying for revival when we remember the great things that God has done in the past. So that's kind of verses 1 through 3. The sons of Korah are looking back and, and seeing what God has done, thanking Him for the restorative work that He's done. We should pray for revival when we sense we are under a cloud of divine displeasure. Uh, that's usually when God has our attention. 
is when we're in error, right? So we should pray for revival when we sense that we're under a a bit of a uh, divine displeasure or an evident lack of blessing. That's verses 4 through 5. Restore us, O God, restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger towards us to cease. That's divine displeasure. When you're sensing God's uh, frustrated with you, that's divine displeasure. And, and the psalmists are saying, I get it, all right, I stop, I'm repenting. Reveal to me where I've gone wrong. That's just, this should be our attitude, this should be our, our words, our actions, our prayers. Reveal to me where I've gone wrong and put my relationship with you back on the right track. Divine displeasure, an evident lack of blessing out of verses 4 and 5. Who we should be praying for, uh, that's the uh, your people part. Your people, all those who trust in Christ, that's who we should be praying for as far as revival. We think, culturally we think, if we have revival, that's going to affect everybody on the outside first so that they can come in. This place will be packed wall to wall, we have to build a new building. Every, uh, that's just a common thought, but the reality is, is that's not where revival starts biblically. Revival biblically starts right here. Starts in the household of God. So who should we be praying for? We should be praying for your people. So you can list that out categorically how you want to. I put it down this way. kind of flows out from here, from your church leadership, the elders, onto the congregation. I should say elders and deacons. Onto the congregation, praying for a great outpouring of God's Holy Spirit into our congregation, that we would be revived Beyond that, out into the other churches in the community. Uh, there's a um, been for too long. This is a real uh, sticky point with me. I'll just insert it into my notes because it's in my head. Uh, for too long, churches have been too disconnected. We've been too disconnected from one another. You, you can't show me that in the pages of the first generation church. You can't show me that in Acts. You can't show me that in, in the epistles in the New Testament. By all accounts, the churches in the New Testament, the pattern should be a pattern, a general pattern in that sense for us today, 2,000 years later. Those churches were connected. Deeply, deeply connected. They supported one another. They prayed for one another. They sent money back and forth. They sent gifts back and forth. They shared and they shared and they shared. There was a connection between the local churches that undeniable in the New Testament. Unfortunately, 2,000 years later, uh, we sit back and haggle over differences. If we want revival, we need to be seeking revival not just as a personal gift or just as a our church gift but we should be seeking it as something that God would bring on a whole community a whole other church community and then if you want to extend that onto the community at large however big you want to take it the first and second great awakening that happened in the United States and in England, the first great awakening 
Anybody have a date on that? I've, I don't have a specific date, but I have a time period in history. Roughly 20 to 30 years before the Revolutionary War. That's kind of that time frame where, where there was massive revival on the East Coast, in England. It's kind of interesting that, that there was revival and it ended up just a couple of decades later, those two countries battling it out for this chunk of, chunk of turf. But God was doing a work. He was doing a work. Quite a few decades later, a second great awakening, as they call it, happened 20 to 30 years prior to the Civil War. Again, God was doing a stirring work in His people, calling them to repentance, calling them to follow Him, calling them to forsake sin. That same sense of revival that was there definitely needed today. And it happens this way. It happens the way that Jesus described it in John 16, verses 7 and 8. Where Jesus is talking not about himself, but he's talking about the coming Holy Spirit. As he was gearing up to depart, as he was gearing up to, to, to go to the cross, to sacrifice himself for you and I, to pay our sin debt that we could never pay, to die for us on that cross, to be buried in the tomb, three days later to be rose again, all before all of that, Jesus is talking about, hey, there's going to be a helper that's going to come and help you. Disciples, disciples were confused. They weren't unsure. Where are you going? Like they thought he was going, you know, maybe a foreign country or something. They really didn't understand what his message was, what his plan was, and what his purpose was. And in all that, he says, hey, don't, don't panic. Don't panic. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And he's going to have a specific job in the lives of God's people. He's going to be your comforter. He's going to be your helper. He's going to be your guide. And he's going to do it three specific ways. John 16, 7 and 8 says that he's going to <clears throat> come to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment to come. Sin, what's wrong? All the things that are wrong, all the things that are bad, all the things that are opposed to who God is. Righteousness, all the things that are good, we think of conviction as, as, as just a kind of this, you know, scroll list of, of, our, of our issues. You know, that God's just recounting this, you know, he's bringing conviction uh, in that sense. And that's true when it comes to the sin side, but on the righteousness side, it's God saying, hey, here's the list of the good. Here's the list of the right. Here's the right direction to go. The Holy Spirit works in our lives in that way. And then, of course, the third category, judgment to come, the uh, hellfire and brimstone, the fact that there will be a day. There will be a day where everyone will give an account. That's the, the essence of how the Holy Spirit works. That's what we need in a penetrating and specific way for us personally, but us as couples, us as families, us as the church, us as a community, that we need to embrace that. Are, are, are we praying? Are we, are we saying when we say, oh God, revive us? Do we have a preset con conception in our minds as to what that looks like? And so if that doesn't happen, then it's not really revival. I'm afraid that's the roadblock to revival. 
To remove that roadblock is to simply say, God, will you revive us? Which means I'm open to what Jesus said in John 16. I'm open to the Holy Spirit's work in my life, regardless of how painful it might be on the short end, how awesome it's going to be on the back end. That's where the psalmist then says that your people may rejoice in you. That we can rejoice. He's going to bring revival so we can rejoice in Him. It's not just, a, it's not just you know, the things that circle around God and, or how awesome you know, uh, our services are or how awesome you know, a community is. That's not the goal of revival. The goal of revival is to rejoice in who God is. To rejoice in who Jesus is in our lives. That's number one. And there's no number two. There's other benefits. I understand that. But so easy, it's, it's so easy then to elevate on a number scale other things that get in the way of God being number one when it comes to what we're celebrating. The idea of revival is this, is that your people may rejoice in who you are. Praying for revival means praying that God's work among His people would cause them to find their joy in nothing else but then in Him. But we can pray with full confidence, knowing that God can revive. Full boldness, not only can we, we should be praying with full of boldness that God would bring revival, but also with humility as we desire God's glory and His praise about this particular passage, and if you've noticed kind of a pattern even to some of my sermons, I've quoted uh, Charles Spurgeon a fair amount. It's actually been pretty uh, enlightening to read a lot of his words as we study through from week to week, pick up some of his uh, insights. Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, The words before us teach us that gratitude has an eye to the giver even beyond the gift. That's what revival is. Teaches us to have gratitude, that gratitude has an eye to the giver, even beyond the gift. Thy people may rejoice in thee. Those who were revived would rejoice not only in the new life, but in the Lord who is the author of it. A lot of times we can get kind of distracted with the new life and the, you know, it's kind of like having a, you know, if you buy a brand new truck, fellas, I get all of your guys' attention, you buy a brand new truck, sometimes you get a little bit, you know, starry-eyed about that brand new truck. And revival teaches us, godly revival teaches us, gratitude for the giver, the person that made it possible the creator that blessed you to have the funds for whatever it is. It doesn't have to be a new truck. It could be anything. Gratitude has an eye towards that giver, the author of life. Psalmist goes on to say in verse 8, I will hear what God, <clears throat> the Lord, will speak, for He will speak peace. He will speak peace to His people and to His saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him. That glory may dwell in our land. There it is, another reference to the land. Note that. I highlighted it in my notes. Verse 10 says, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and a righteousness shall look down from heaven. 
<clears throat> yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him, and shall make His footsteps our pathway. In verses 8 through 13, the psalmist wraps up with the truth that God will speak peace to His people. God is going to speak peace to His people. The opposite of being revived is uh, not having peace. Or not having, no, not the opposite. The same as not having a revival in our lives, not having being restored by God is, is this lack of total peace. You guys know what peace is? Put this on, a, on kind of a value scale. Peace is the rarest of commodities. Peace is the rarest of commodities. And God is saying here in the psalm, the psalmist is saying that God is going to speak out peace to his people. And, of course, there's a warning not to return to their folly. What was their folly? We're going to come back and answer that question towards the end. But there's two promises regarding uh, the land here. There's a promise that God's glory is going to be there and that God's blessing will yield an increase. So there's a promise of God's presence with the people where they're supposed to be. Do we get that? There's a promise of, of, of God's <clears throat> glory, His presence, with the people where they're supposed to be. And there's also the promise that not only is, will His glory be there, but there's the promise that there will be an increase in the land. There will be an increase in the land. There will be fruitfulness in the land. There will be a benefit in the land. There will be things to do. There will be, be harvest to be harvested in the land. There's going to be fruit to pick in the land. There will be seed to sow in the land. There's going to be, you can't have increase if you don't have production. You don't have production unless you start planting some seeds, unless you have work. And God said He's going to multiply that. He's going to bring that increase to the people into the land and our land will yield its increase because of God's favor being there. The land represented the location where God's people could dwell. Where they had a sense of this, uh, this word, belonging. The, if you take that word, belong, and just split it apart... The idea of having belonging, and I'll, I'll tell you, we have an epidemic in our culture of people that don't feel like they belong anywhere. That's true. Uh, geographically, that's true. Politically, that's true. Uh, socially, that's true. Religiously, that's true. I ask people all the time, you know, hey, you know, so, where do you go to church? Ah, I, don't, I don't go to church. I don't really have a place where I, what? Where I belong, where I fit in. But if you take that word and you just stretch it out a little bit, the secret to belonging is to be long. You have to drop down some roots. We have an epidemic in our country where people work a job two, three, four years, max. That's it. 
boom, off to something else, and they're off to somewhere else. They're not being long. They're not, they're not establishing anything because they barely get their boxes unpacked. They barely, they barely get to know the people that live just across the fence, just next door, because they're not there long enough to, to, to experience life together in that sort of a way. Now, I say this with great risk because I, I know <clears throat> we've, we've had a, a huge influx of new people and I'm not pointing you guys out. I'm not saying that you're in the wrong place. Maybe you're in the right place, right? And I think so. And I think we're going to see more of it as the summer goes on. I'm simply saying that this idea of kind of being established, putting down roots, getting to know folks, being invested, I'll tell you there's a downside to it. Do you guys know what the downside is? Relationally, you have to take a risk. Relationally, you have to take risks with people. That's why a lot of people don't like coming to church, because you get to know somebody. Next thing you know, you're doing stuff. Next thing you know, they disappoint you. And the risk that you took now is a wound. That's why people don't like to belong. They don't like to take that risk. But the idea is biblically true. The idea is this idea that God is planting people the idea here is, is that they have a place of belonging, that God has called them to be somewhere. It has an effect not only relationally and in other ways, but it has an effect on their identity. And it has an effect on our identity in that way too, that it takes a while to get to know people. It gets a takes a while to build relationships. It takes a while sometimes to build trust. It takes a while to, to, to be established where there's, uh, there's people that will listen to what you have to say. It takes a while. I, I, I say this often. Be the type of person where God, or where, <clears throat> be the type of believer where people come and say, why are you different? But that takes a while. That takes a while. Now, some people are going to rush right up and ask the question right from the get-go. They're not afraid to, you know, find out. But a lot of people just want to sit back and observe. They want to sit back and observe. And if what they're seeing in a community is the U-Hauls coming and going and never knowing the person's name even, uh, that's not a sense of belonging. It's not a community where there's a sense of belonging. All these dynamics play out true in the church as well. We're called to be engaged has an effect on our identity. So what's this idea of Israel's folly? There's a warning there, verse 8. Look back to it real quick. Verse 8, I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people and to His saints. A great promise of how God interacts with His people. A little warning there, not so little really. It doesn't look like much, but it's, it's actually really a big thing. But let them not turn back to their folly. That folly that's spoken about. You know, this, this particular word in the, in the Strong's Concordance is only used twice in the, all of the Bible. And I was talking with Daniel about this. You would think that, wait, what are you talking about? Proverbs uses the word folly all the time. So 
why is this one different? This one's different from the idea that, that, that we can draw from this word folly. The folly here is really can be summarized this way. Misplaced confidence. Misplaced confidence. So if you kind of insert that into verse 8 there, but let them not turn back to their misplaced confidence is what God's saying to the nation of Israel. And I think He's saying it to us. It's really easy for us to turn back to, to think differently about something that we had a lot of confidence in another time, or or maybe it's something brand new, and this time it's not going to disappoint me, this time it's not going to let me down, and so I'm putting all my confidence in that, and God's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is that really what you want to do? Let them not go back to their folly, their misplaced confidence. Wow, I don't even know where to start with examples. You can start in chapter 3 of Genesis, I suppose. Misplaced confidence. Sin in the Garden of Eden. You can look through the pages of Genesis. You can see where the people trying to build this tower to God because they were so great and they were so mighty that if we just build a structure tall enough we can reach God misplaced confidence, folly God says, ah make you guys all speak different languages what a moment that was like if there's a place in time I think that I would like to just like go back and watch you know, a chapter of the Bible, that would probably be at the top when all these people, you know, they're just working so hard. And they're like ants in an anthill, you know, doing their thing. And everybody's gathering stuff and they're working really good and all that. And all of a sudden, what, 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 what? I don't understand what you're saying. What? I think, it, I think it's, I find humor in it, I suppose. Misplaced confidence in their abilities. How about Abraham, who received God's promise, promise of a nation, even though he was old, well beyond the parenting years, way beyond the, uh, him and Sarah, way beyond that time of life, waiting on that promise, waiting on that promise, waiting on that promise, doesn't come, doesn't come. They get tired of waiting. So, insert Hagar, the handmaiden, who Abraham fathers a child with, Ishmael. Misplaced confidence. It's the confidence of the flesh that we can make God's will happen. God says, nope, that doesn't work. Start over. Wait for me. Look at the life of Jacob. Abraham's grandson. His name's the deceiver, so that gives you plenty of uh, understanding just in a name where this misplaced confidence might come from. You know, a great read in Genesis, I think it's chapter 32, where you see Jacob's life completely transform. Completely transform because he had a meeting with God. Uh, physical altercation 
but a meeting nonetheless completely changed his life. And you kind of see from that point forward this change in his behavior start to slowly move towards him putting his confidence in God rather than misplacing it on his own abilities to make things happen, his own abilities to trick people, misplaced confidence. Wow, you really see it all through the pages of not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. One of those places, though, in the Old Testament, before we move on and close out here, one of those places in the Old Testament that I uh, was reading just the other night was in the book of Jeremiah, about chapters 39 to 45. A little refresher if you're rusty on the book of Jeremiah is that <clears throat> chapter 39 of Jeremiah is uh, when the exile, is when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. Okay? And, and Jeremiah had been telling, he'd been telling. The king of Judah, hey, it's going to drop. It's going to drop. God's made his decision. Our nation is going to, we're going to become captive again. We have not dealt with our stuff. And this psalm's kind of on the backside of that, looking back at that event, you know, and praising God for bringing those captives out and, and setting us free and, and all of that. But on the front end of it, Jeremiah had been warning and warning and warning and warning the king it's going to happen. Be ready. Be ready. Well, chapter 39, it, the shoe drops. Jerusalem's under siege. Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians. They start carting people off, dispersing them all over the known world. The only people that are left, the only, you're, getting my, you're getting a lot of chapters condensed into just a few sentences. The only people that are left are the people that are too weak to be any good too poor to be any good or any of use to the Babylonians. And this band of guerrilla fighters that kind of ran to the mountains. And they had kind of, you know, they were part of the battle initially, but, but God, God made his proclamation. So this band of fighters who are hiding out, and this is getting into more of like chapter you know, 40, 42, 41-42. These band of fighters... Uh, basically, they, they, uh, uh, Jeremiah goes to them, and they want Jeremiah to seek God on their behalf. And Jeremiah has, they have this interesting interchange, and Jeremiah says, all right, I'm, I'll pray to God if you want me. He's a prophet, that's his job, I'll pray if you want me to pray. And, uh, <clears throat> but if you don't do what God says, it's not going to go good. It's actually going to get pretty ugly. And uh, again, you're getting my abbreviated version. So he does. And uh, it says there that uh, they received the word. Essentially, they received what Jeremiah had to say, what God had to say through Jeremiah, and immediately, eh, it's not going to work. They already had a preconceived idea how this thing was going to go. And they think that they're doing right by fighting for the land. They think they're doing right by, by battling it out, hiding in the mountains, you know, trying to take a few pot shots. And, and things had gone from bad to worse in Judah in that day. The king of Judah was assassinated. They said it was going to happen. And, you know, this guy 
you know, ends up getting the sword. So it's just kind of gone bad to worse. And it gets worse because they basically ransacked Jeremiah and head to Egypt, which was their plan all along. And the reason they wanted to go to Egypt, the word says, the reason why they wanted to go to Egypt, you know why they wanted to go to Egypt? Because it was peaceful. No war, no battling, nobody's carting anybody off from Egypt, so let's just go to Egypt. And Jeremiah says, God, God says, don't, don't do that. Well, that's what they wanted to do anyway. Because their hearts weren't in it from the beginning, see? And it's a great lesson when it comes to revival, when it comes to following God, is, hey, if you're not interested in what God has to say and surrendering to Him, uh, there's not a lot of reason to ask in the first place. That's not a repentant heart to say, God, give me what I want, and uh, if I don't get it, then reject, you know, whatever God says. Anyway, story concludes. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar just blasted right down, killed them all anyway. <laughs> so it really didn't pan out too good with them or too good for them. You see this idea, though, and these guys really, just these warriors, these guerrilla warriors, to me, were a great example out of just a, a few pages. I, I hadn't read, I don't think I'd read the latter part of Jeremiah in probably 15 years. But it's a great example, kind of a stretched out storyline of this whole group of people, not just an individual here or there, but a whole group of people <clears throat> who had misplaced confidence. They're putting their confidence in where they thought was the right place to be. They're putting their confidence in what they thought was the right thing to do. They're putting their confidence, if they could, if they could just, uh, you know... Uh, hijack God's prophet, lucky's a lucky charm, eh, take him with us, God will then be on our side. didn't work. It actually went worse. It actually went really bad. It, because the thing that they didn't put down, the folly that they didn't put down, and the folly that was Israel's nemesis, and also I think the folly that is a lot of our nemesis, is uh, nobody's dealing with idolatry. Nobody's dealing with idolatry. I wouldn't say nobody, but there is just such a resistance. There's such a resistance for the nation of Israel. There's such a resistance through the pages of Scripture. You, you look through the kings and chronicles, you see where just a few good kings trying to do it right. All the bad kings, man, up goes the uh, idol worship. And these guys were no exception. That was the reason why they ended up, the nation of Israel ended up in captivity to start with, because they didn't deal with their misplaced confidence. And in fact, for this group, it actually got worse. The idolatry got worse. Actually became issues at home. Their wives actually become the huge proponents of idolatry and so on and so forth. It's a great read. I'd encourage you to go to Jeremiah and read it. Now that i got everybody's attention on the matter. We've all been fooled by the shell game called idolatry. That's something we all have in common. We've all been fooled by this, you know, <laughs> shell game called idolatry. Ah, it's there. No, that's not it. Ah. You know, I hated that game when I was a kid. We've all been fooled. Roman says it actually this way. I'll be more specific. 
Romans, the book of Romans says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the mark. So worship team wants to come on up. We'll close out today. We've all fallen short of the mark. The great news, though, is our promises are not found in a place as important as belonging can be. Our promises are ultimately not found in a place, but in a person. That's the sense of belonging that Christ has to offer. Do I think that, that belonging to a place is important? Absolutely. But, but one family can live in a community for ten generations. If they don't know Christ, their future is certain anyway. They may have a sense of physical belonging because of their longevity on a homestead. But there's no eternal future there. Christ calls us to an e- eternal belonging that starts as we trust and accept Him. That's the land that we have to look for. That's the land where there's glory. And that's the land that will yield the increase. Psalms 85 is a great word of the redemptive and restorative work that Jesus has done for His people. That God has done not only for the nation of Israel, but that's the same type of work that He wants to do for you, and that's the same type of work that He wants to do for me. That's the personal revival that we need to spread the news of. Let's worship together.